Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Adam, for sharing your triad story. It's been so fun to hear these triad stories the last couple of weeks. Um, my name's uh, Jordan Droge. I'm one of the folks that serves on the preaching team here at Missio Day Church. Uh, and I, I am not a, a Mr. Fix-It kind of a guy. Um, I, uh, I've learned some things along the way. You know, when you own a home, some stuff happens and you kind of have to learn on the fly. But I'm not like a manly man. I don't go out and hunt and then eat what I just hunted. I'm a wuss and go to Hannaford and buy my meat. Um, so, uh, but a couple summers ago, I was on sabbatical. And one of my um, projects over sabbatical was to build a deck. I built a deck on the back of my house. And since I'm not a Mr. Fix-It, I went to Home Depot and talked to the deck guy. And so he was like, hey, you know, what kind of, uh, what kind of deck do you want to build? And I said, uh a rectangular shaped deck? I don't know. He said, well, what size do you want? And I'm like, medium size? What am I ordering? Like a value meal here? Super size. I have no idea. Um, and so uh, the entire project took much longer than expected. There were some uh, tricky parts to it. But without a doubt, the hardest thing about the project was installing the three footers that were necessary for the size of the deck that we were, that, that, that we were building. Adam actually helped me install those footers. It was a perfect day for it. It was 100 degrees and humidity really high. Um, but the, the, the footers are what the joists rest on. So you've got your, your deck boards, which rest on the joists, and the joists rest on the footers. And when installed, these footers were large, cylindrically shaped uh, cement blocks. But they're actually not blocks because they have to go four feet deep into the ground because they have to go below what's called the frost line. So just like every house has a foundation, um, every uh, deck should have footers. So footers are to a deck what foundations are to a house. And if you get that wrong, or if it's not solid and secure, the deck may work for a while, but because it's not a sound structure over time, it'll fall apart. And our, our text this morning deals with something that, like those footers, are the foundation for us as followers of Jesus. And because of that, it's something that we have to get right. To be the people of Jesus that he's calling us to be in the world. We're in our fourth week in, in the Life of Christ series, which is a journey through the book of Matthew. And today we're going to be looking at a powerful passage in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. So if you have a Bible or a device or a papyrus scroll, go ahead and pull it out. Uh, Matthew 4, that's right in between Matthew 3 and Matthew 5. I took a seminary class to figure that out. Um, so uh, we're actually going to do something a little bit different that maybe we've never done at Missio Day Church. We're actually going to stand for the reading of the gospel. And so if you would uh, stand, you can read while you stand. That's okay. That's, Jesus still loves you. We can do two things at the same time. So we're going to stand together as we read uh, Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to them, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So in this passage, I think that the writer of the Gospel of Matthew is attempting to make us aware of a connection that he's trying to to make between Jesus and the story of Israel. Notice that all of the passages that Jesus quotes are taken from the story of Israel in the wilderness. Last week we heard from Dr. Jones, that's Ken Jones, not Indiana Jones. Ken talked about the previous chapter in Matthew 3, which ends with Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. Hey, that's my name. It's pretty tight, it's in the Bible. Jesus had just come through the waters of baptism, just as the Israelites had come through the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus himself is led out into the wilderness for 40 days, just as the Israelites were led out into the desert. So uh, there's a definite connection, clear similarities, but an entirely different result. The gospel writer is making this connection in order to say that Jesus is going to do and be what Israel could not do and be for herself. Furthermore, Jesus is faced with temptation by the evil one, which is another echo, only this time it's an echo to the Adam and Eve story and their temptation, but again, with a different result. Jesus remains faithful. Adam and Eve wanted to be the image and not the image bearer. But Jesus is the one true image bearer. The writer is taking the echoes of the Exodus story combining it with the story of Adam and Eve, and reshaping it in and around the person of Jesus. Why? Because there's a new story being written. A new exodus that is going to happen. A new rescue. And in Jesus, this new exodus will be God's rescue project for His people. But it will also burst forth and become a rescue project for all of creation. But let's zoom in a bit bit further in this passage because an invitation for all of us to be transformed, I think, is awaiting us. Notice how Jesus is tempted. The evil one doesn't say to Jesus, what if you did this or what if you had all of that? He says, if you are the son of God, then you can do this or then you would have this. He attacks Jesus at his core. He attacks and calls into question his identity. An identity that was given to him at the end of Matthew 3 at his baptism, where the voice of the Father says to Jesus, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This is what is true about Jesus. And this is what is attacked by the evil one. Now, think think about it for a second. Out of all of the options available to thwart Jesus... The evil one doesn't send an army of 10,000 soldiers with their sword drawn. Instead, the evil one just takes one sword and tries to puncture the core of Jesus, his identity. The fact that this is the chosen tactic by the evil one tells us something profoundly significant. 
That identity is not just the window dressing of a person, but in fact the central core. Like my deck project, identity is not a nicely designed lattice on the sides of the deck. It is the footer that upholds the entire structure itself. You know, identity is an oft-used word and topic of discussion in our public discourse. Uh, Although sometimes the word discourse seems to be an overly generous title for what happens in our culture today. But identity can tend to, not all the time, but in our culture, identity tends to be self-given, self-serving, and even divisive. It's, it, it's self-given. It's this idea that no person, no thing, no entity can tell me who I am. And I think it stems from this fear that if someone else superimposes an identity upon us, that it will likely be constraining It will bind us up and ultimately keep us from being free. The identity of Jesus, however, is not self-given. It was given to him by the Father. And Jesus was not self-serving. He was selfless. He continued to live into the reality of not my will, but your will be done. Jesus' divinely given identity did not put constraints upon him. It didn't create some mindless servant bound up in chains. Jesus was the freest human to ever exist. He lived freely. He lived freely. He died freely. And he resurrected freely so that he might free all of creation. So this text reveals to us the significance of identity. And the fact that Jesus was truly and fully connected to his own identity. And this is what enabled him to stand firm in the midst of the storms of temptation from the evil one. Jesus doesn't give into temptation to prove his identity because he trusts in the one who has given him that identity. Just as the identity of Jesus was not self-given, but rather divinely given from the Father, so it is with you and with me. My identity, your identity, our identity together as a people is not self-given. The good news is that as a result of who Jesus was, what he said, how he lived, his death, resurrection, and ascension, because of all of that, we too get to share in this Father-given identity. Friends, the good news this morning, and the good news for all of time, is that no matter who you are, where you come from, what you look like, no matter how much money is in your wallet, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter what you believe or you don't believe. Jesus looks at you and says, this is my daughter. This is my son. My beloved. With him with whom I am well pleased. We've been adopted into the family of God. And given this identity, which means that Jesus really meant what he said when he said, I will not leave you orphaned. I'm coming for you. This is the reality of who you are. This is your true self, your God-given identity. And there's a key element of Jesus' identity, and as a result, a key element to our identity, and we can't miss this. Did you notice something interesting about when the identity of Jesus was actually given? 
Remember, the Father says, this is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. But Jesus hadn't done anything yet. His ministry had not started. The Father doesn't wait until Jesus gives the best sermon ever, i.e. the Sermon on the Mount, and then give Him His his identity. He doesn't give it to Him when He's on the cross. He doesn't give it to Him even after He defeats death. But that apparently was not the best time to give it either. He gives it to him before he has done any ministry. Why? Because this identity is tied to the person who is given the identity, not to the actions done by the recipient of that identity. This identity is not the reward for doing the right thing, and it's also not something that can be taken away. It's not something earned, it's something given. Jesus did not do the right thing and then got His identity as a reward. He was given His identity. He received it. And He lived, moved, and found His being in that identity. And as a result of that, He took action. And so it is with our identity. It is tied to Jesus. Who He is and what He has done. And not, and not just tied to what we do or don't do. After all, we are called human beings, not human doings. And yet in our world today, especially in the West and most notably in America, we are defined by what we do. Our identity is tethered to what we do, what we have accomplished, what we have accumulated, what we look like, what knowledge we have gained, what capital letters follow our last name, our status. That is why it is difficult for us to believe That our identity is not something that we have earned. There's a sense in which we, we think we have to prove who we are based upon what we do. What we have or what we have accomplished. And this is not just a struggle for the so called secular world. This idea of earning our identity by doing is alive and well in the church. Don't get it twisted. We haven't figured this out either. We just hide it a lot better by calling it things like ministry. Or serving the church. Listen to this quote from Dale Bruner in his commentary on this passage. The issue is sharp and clear. Either we believe the voice of baptism, you are the Son of God, or we believe the other voice, you are the Son of God, when you can prove it by signs. Friends, the evil one was not tempting Jesus to do something, but rather to be someone to reject the true identity and and participate in a false identity. So perhaps temptation is not an invitation to do something that you shouldn't do, but rather an invitation to be someone that you are not. It's an invitation to live in the false self, the false story, and not the one that's given to us by the Father. What if the broken decisions of our lives and the lives of those around us are not just a result of circumstances or bad luck or fate, but a result of believing and living into a false identity and the wrong story. What if, in fact, broken decisions are a result of broken foundations? No good contractor would ever look at a deck that is an unsound structure and falling apart and say, let's put some new deck boards on it, fresh paint, and no one will be the wiser. Can we look at the brokenness in our own lives and in the lives of those around us 
those who, who we long to come and follow Jesus and say those broken decisions are a result of them not knowing who they really are. If somehow they could know who they really are, maybe they would live differently. What if broken decisions are not invitations to do something we shouldn't, but in fact, invitations to be someone that we are not? What if we looked at how we live our lives and asked the question, what does this tell me about what I believe about who I am? I've seen this as a young life leader working with high school kids, that on the surface, it can kind of seem like there are these... uh, decisions or temptations or desires to party or have sex or to uh, have the perfect body, whatever that means. And it seems like there are these decisions on the surface, but after a little bit of digging and conversations, it's actually the result of somewhere along the way, they picked up a false identity of what it means to be human. And as a result, they live out of that. That if they would know that they are dearly loved by the Father, they might choose to live differently. I know it's true in my own life that I have this audio track that plays in my mind that seems like talking about the decisions that I've made but attack me at my core. Jordan, if you really were a beloved son of God, if you really were a man of God, then why would your wife have to work? If you really were a man, you'd be able to make enough money so she wouldn't have to work. Who do you think you are? Jordan, if you really were a beloved son of God called to do ministry, why would those young life leaders back out? Why would those kids back out of camp? Why would those group of kids reject Jesus? Who do you think you are? Jordan, if you really were a beloved son of God, why would you just yell at your kids like you just did? You're just like your father. Who do you think you are? Could the decisions that happen on the surface of one's life be the result of belief about one's identity that are buried deep within the core of a person? Here are a series of questions along this line of thinking that are meant to kind of stir something in us and perhaps the Lord might use these questions to to, to work something in you. Here they are. Is your identity tied to what you've been given? Or to the giver of all things? Is your identity tied to your children and their success? Or is your identity tied to the one who calls you beloved child of God? Is your identity tied to your abilities, what you can do, what you've accomplished? Or is it tied to the one who has given you those abilities? Is your identity tied to what's in your bank account? Or is it tied to the one who has given you everything in that bank account? This one's a little bit tricky for us in the church. Is your identity tied to the things that you do for Jesus? Or is it tied to Jesus? Oswald Chambers said that the biggest competitor to Jesus Christ is service to Jesus Christ. Do you live as God's son or God's daughter? Or do you live as God's employee? constantly feeling like you have to earn your way. These questions are not meant to discourage or to impose guilt, but rather to reveal ways in which we have lived into and out of the false self so that we might turn towards the good news of our true identity in Christ.
So here, here are three thoughts that I had on how we might move towards a posture of living into and out of our true identity. Number one, that we reject the false self. We need to be a people who see temptation and idolatry as not just an invitation to make certain choices, but in fact an invitation to be someone that we are not. We have to see see these things for what they are. Not an invitation to do, but an invitation to be. And it's to be the false self. We need to be awakened to the fact that all of these decisions and temptations are just window dressing for something much, much deeper. And what I will always love about Jesus is that He doesn't just deal with the things that are on the surface, but He goes to the deepest core of who we are as people. Look at verse 10 in our passage. Jesus says, Away with you, Satan. This is not a casual dismissal. There is a force, a significance, a power in this this rejection. Get this as far away from me as possible. This does not belong. We need to be a people who see these temptations for what they are. An invitation to the false self. And that we would say, get this away from me. This does not belong here. This is not true about who I am. Number two, that we would reclaim and remember our true identity. If we are rejecting something, it means that we are embracing something else. If we are moving away from something, it means we are moving towards something else. And as we reject the false self, let's run to the reality of who we are. And friends, we need one another in this process. Yet another reason why you need to be connected to a tribe and use this beautiful tool to to, to have people who know you that say, hey, that, that is not true about who you are. This is true about who you are. Uh, my, my sister is a recovering addict, and she's kind of been in and out of some 12-step programs. And um, one of the, 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 the first part of, of, of the 12-step program is coming to a point where you realize there's nothing inside of yourself that can help you, that there has to be a power outside of you in order to move forward in this process. And part of the 12-step program is that, that you, you, you say things out loud to yourself about that state the reality of who you are and your situation in life. It's almost like their, their liturgy. Um, well, I've uh, made something that, that Liz has helped me put together. And um, it's just a, a little card, and every single one of you will leave today with it. But it's just a reminder of who you are, saying that you are a beloved daughter, a beloved son of the King, and to live out of that today. And so you will get that card, and you can put it in your Bible, you can put it on the dashboard of your car, on your refrigerator, on your mirror, wherever you will see it. But let that serve as a daily reminder, to remind you about the reality of who you are, and that it will never change no matter what happens that day. That we need to be people who reclaim and remember our true identity. Number three, that we would live out of our true identity. Notice what Jesus does in response to all the temptations he is faced with. After every one of them, he quotes scripture. He seems to think that there's some power in these words. Now, this wasn't Jesus showing off his sword drill skills, okay? This wasn't like some sort of magical thing where, you know, you say these things like Harry Potter, you know, God in Leviosa. Like, it's not that. Um, Jesus did not just recount these rote memory verses, but he had inhabited them. 
He found himself within the story of God. And we need to be people that inhabit Scripture. Not just read, not just memorize, but inhabit it. That we might find our true story within the story of God. That we might find the true reality of who we are in God's story. Because the truest thing about God is what God says about Himself, and the truest thing about you is what God says about you. That we would inhabit Scripture so that it would become a part of who we are. You know, in my, in my marriage with Emily, if, if, if I thought that um, she didn't love me um, uh, no matter what, if, if I thought that I had to earn her love every day, man, there would be such a degree of, of fear and pa- panic every day. Did I do enough? Did I check off the list the right way? And if, and if I did those things, did I, did I do them the right way? A constant fear of, of, did I do enough to earn that love? But because I know that she loves me no matter what, no matter what, and that that's settled, there's so much freedom. So that when I do those things, it's an act of gratitude and love and connection and relationship. When that question is settled, your story has the freedom to be rewritten. And the good news is that question is settled. So I pray that we would be people who reject the false self Reclaim and remember our true identity and live out of our true identity. I want to close with this clip from the movie uh, Blood Diamond. Um, There's a scene with uh, Solomon, um, this character Solomon, talking with his son. And his son was, uh, was taken and was a child soldier. And he was just rescued out of that. And they have this powerful interaction. So let's, let's take a look at that.
Solomon continues to say again and again what is true about his son's identity. Culminating with this beautiful line. I know that I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. He acknowledges the broken choices made, but then tells him that those do not define who he is. And friends, may this be a word from the Lord Jesus to you this morning. I am your father who loves you. And you are my daughter. You are my son. And you will come home with me and be my daughter and be my son again. Missio Day Church, if we can be a people who move towards living into and out of our true identity as beloved daughters and sons, friends, there's no telling what we might be able to experience. And there's no telling what we could do in this world. But the good news is that no matter what we do, we will never be defined by that. We will always be defined by who we are. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I'm grateful for the good news that we belong to you that we are your daughters and sons, that you look at us right now and call us beloved. You call us your children whom you're well pleased with. And I don't know what kind of pain or hurt or situations walk through this door this morning, but Lord, you do. And I pray for those in this room that are, find it really hard to believe that that's true about who we are. What's so beautiful about the good news, Lord, is that it's, just, it's, it's too good. It cannot be true. And yet it is, Lord. And we know that when we give ourselves over to the good news of our true identity, we can live as free people. And we are longing to be free people. So, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you move us towards a deeper belief in reclaiming our true identity as your beloved children? That we would not tie our identity to what we do or what we've accomplished or what we haven't done, but simply to you. We want to be at home with the Father, celebrating. And I thank you, Lord, that while we were a long ways off, you saw us and your heart was filled with compassion and you ran to us and embraced us because we are your children. And I pray that we'd be people who boldly live in and out of that identity. For the sake of your kingdom, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.